Welcome to Brightline Living, the official podcast of Brightline Eating, where we focus on living a life free from food obsession and filled with peace and unstoppability. Each week, Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson, New York Times bestselling author and founder of Brightline Eating, will cover topics ranging from food addiction to fascinating science and how to live a bright life. Now here's Susan with the audio version of this week's blog. Hey there, it's Susan Pierce Thompson and welcome to the weekly vlog. Ooh, so I have a lot to share with you today, a lot to talk about and bear with me because I don't ever use a teleprompter for this or have anything scripted. Um, when people come down and visit my house and they see my video studio down here, it's one of the questions they always ask. So I might as well share with you now, just in case you've ever been curious. Um, yes, indeed, this is all ex as extemporaneous as it seems like it is. And what I prepare when I shoot a vlog is somewhere between um, nothing but a topic in my mind, on the one hand, and a piece of paper with a couple bullets written down on the other hand, that on the other end, that's that's pretty much well. Sometimes I have kind of a typed sort of nested bullets if there's really a lot to cover, and I want to make sure I don't miss any of the details. And then I kind of have to memorize that sheet of paper in the sense of like memorizing the topics and subtopics, which um, I have mnemonics that help me with that. Um, but I, but I'm always some version of flying on the seat of my pants when I shoot this vlog, and. Um, 95% of the time I do it in one take. I just roll the camera and that's that's the vlog. So anyway, today's vlog has a fair bit of nuance and I did not prepare the whole sheet of paper. So bear with me, but I I have some uh, a couple of stories to tell and two kind of big topics that I want to weave together here and I'm not even sure which is going to be the topic of the vlog. I want to talk about um, some pretty harsh criticisms of bright light eating. And I want to talk about response inhibition, which is uh, an interesting topic in cognitive science that pertains to bright light eating. And, and uh, they intersect in a really interesting way. Um, and I thought, oh, this would be a really good vlog. Okay, so here we go. To, to start with a story, the other morning, this was like within the last week, um, uh, the chief of staff of Brightline Eating, Christine uh, Gemeno Davis, Chris, uh, reached out to me, kind of, I, I felt the energy, even though it was just a text message. And she said, uh, watch this and let, you know, watch this. And and I watched it. It was like a 20 minute thing of like <laughs> this, God bless her, this nutritionist just ripping me and Brightline Eating to shreds, ripping us to shreds. And, and like getting a lot of stuff wrong and doing a pretty, um, intentional, like, like a, like she tried really hard to like know what she was talking about, but just totally missing, uh, the point. And, and I've seen, and she was mean. She was like really, uh, mean. And, um, there are people out there that have built up platforms where they basically what they do is they rip apart diets. And, um, okay, fair enough. I think that there's a lot of damage being done by the diet industry, especially when you start looking at diet pills and so forth. I have a friend in Facebook who's really high up in Facebook in the company. And, uh, I was chatting with him, um, about Facebook ads and stuff. And, and he was saying that basically Facebook 
has programmed their bots to weed out kitty porn and false claims from diet pills are like the two like most major things that they're trying to weed off their site. I don't, you know, so it's interesting, like how, how much that's, that's pretty bad company, right? False claims from diet pills up there with uh, child pornography. That's, that's how intensely they see the harm from that industry. Um, yeah. So that's saying something. So anyway, she, so, you know, okay. So people have built platforms by ripping apart diets, but then, you know, they have people do some research for them and then they rip apart the diet. So they were doing that about bright line eating. And so I want to say a couple of things about this. First of all, you know, when I responded to Chris, she was all like, she, she, whew, her feathers were ruffled. Like they made this mistake and that's not what we say. And this is wrong. And this is wrong. And this is wrong. And I was sort of like, this is what is facing us as we grow. This is what is facing us as we grow. There, there is a very strong school of thought that any way of eating other than intuitive eating, listening to your body and responding to its natural cues, healing your inner wounds, um, that anything other than that, any sort of food rules or prescriptive anything is eating disordered and it's, and it's harmful, right? And, um, and, 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 and I gotta say, for most people, I'm a, I'm a big fan of like, listen to your body cues and do your inner work. I mean, I'm a big fan of do your inner work for us as well. There are times though, when some, when people arrive at the gates of Brightline Eating, their body cues are, they're not working anymore. Their brain is fully hijacked and, you know, listen to your body and eat, eat what it's telling you to eat means eating a pint of ice cream every night. Let's not, let's not fool ourselves. Right. Or, or whatever your equivalent is. Right. So, um, the people who are who are really seeing that as as the only path toward food recovery or food well being um, have never experienced what we've experienced, right? They just don't know. It's sort of like God bless them; they know not what they say. They just don't know, and and they're not neuroscientists. They don't know about addiction. As a matter of fact, they explicitly don't believe in food addiction, and that was a big part. That's a big part of all of their things. And and uh, you'll know one of these folks from this camp, if they start talking about food addiction, they'll say it's controversial, it's not proven, and all the research is done on rats. And it, and there's no research on humans, it's all done on rats. And and I'm just here to tell you, um, that's woefully uninformed. Like, here's a whole book on food and addiction. This is an oldie and a goodie, um, food and addiction. This is, this is you, you know old now. I think it was, was it, was it 2002? It's pretty old. Um, here's a more recent one, compulsive eating behavior and food addiction, emerging pathological constructs. And that these are textbooks with like loaded with citations, processed food addiction, foundations, assessment, and recovery. Um, and if you pick up those books and you really study it, what you see is that the research is done on humans 
and on rodents, and that's how neuroscience is done. Um, don't fool yourself. Any medication you're taking, the bulk of that research was done on rodents. And then they check, especially if there's a good animal model for that construct. Like there's a good animal model for addiction. There's a good animal model for Parkinson's. There's a good, I could go on and on, right? There's a good animal model um, for gastrointestinal everything because rodents and the gastrointestinal system and the addiction system, um, they work pretty much the way human uh, systems work. And so you can do the research on rodents. This is how neuroscience works. Now, I don't have a rat lab. Don't blame the messenger. I know that a lot of people have really, um, don't shoot the messenger. I know people have really strong views about animal research. And I'm not a neuroscientist with an active uh, rodent lab. And I don't, um, I don't contribute in any way to that controversy this way or that way. I'm just telling you how it is actually done. Like medical research, neuroscientific research, if they can find an animal model where they can do more rapid uh, research um, with, yeah, just more rapid research, they will. And then the second step is to check that it is, that it's the same in humans after you have a kind of a body of research done on rodents. That's the way it's done. And in these books, you'll see the research on humans is um, is proportionate to what it would be in medical science and neuroscience. And here's what we're seeing in human brains. It's not just the dopamine downregulation that I've told you about in the nucleus accumbens. It's not just that. There's an entire pattern of brain functioning when someone is addicted. And you see it all with food addiction. So when someone is addicted to drugs, not only do you see dopamine downregulation, but you see downregulation of other neurotransmitter systems, serotonin, endocannabinoids. You see that with food addiction as well. And not only do you see this downregulation pattern, which is what causes cravings, right? This is what causes the, the sort of itchy, depleted, sort of not feeling good state and, and that spurs you on to go get another hit. Not only do you see that, but you see heightened cue reactivity to um, the cues that are related to the the procurement of another hit, right? So in, in people with food addiction, that would be the logos, the sights, the smells of food. And in people with food addiction, you see heightened cue reactivity, just like if you take someone who's addicted to cocaine and you put them in an fMRI scanner, um, their brains will light up way bigger to uh, the cues of cocaine consumption, right? Some money, um, a mirror with some white powder on it, you know, a, a rolled up dollar bill that cocaine addicts use to snort cocaine, that kind of thing, right? So you see that with food addiction as well, heightened cue reactivity. And then you see impaired impulse control, impaired impulse control. So um, the prefrontal cortex is less able to rein in behavioral impulses, okay? So um, it's a whole pattern and actual actual cognitive deficits as well. Um, uh, poorer working memory, uh, poorer executive functions, you see that with addiction and you see that with, with food addiction. I've put all this in my third book. So if you want more of this science, um, at the end of this year, December 28th, my third book, Resume, The Powerful Reframe to End the Crash and Burn Cycle of Food Addiction will come out. 
um, with Everett Considine as a co-author, and he talks about the parts perspective, the psychological perspective of all this, and I talk about the science of it. And we really go through food addiction more deeply in that book. So, so when these folks say all the research is on rodents, it's like, okay, well, f- first of all, that's a misunderstanding of the actual body of literature that exists. I just wrote down for you in case you want to pre-order it as well. There, there's another great textbook coming out called Food Addiction, Obesity, and Disorders of Overeating, an Evidence-Based Assessment and Clinical Guide. Um, now, this is not a Barnes & Noble book. This is 170 bucks. This is a medical textbook for uh, physicians and for mental health practitioners. But again, we're talking about reviewing the research in human beings as it pertains to the construct of food addiction. And the reality is that this is, this is how the brain wires for human beings is toward food in some human beings, not all, in some human beings with um, the entire pattern of brain changes that go along with disorders of addiction. That's, that's how the brain looks when food addiction is in play. So, um, so if you hear these folks, and this is, there's a whole, um, a whole group of people in my third book, um, Resume, I talk a little bit about the history of this. Why is there this divide and why is there this entrenched um, subset of people with degrees, nutrition degrees, counseling psychology degrees, clinical psychology degrees, and eating disorder treatment degrees? Why is there this subset of people so inflamed that food addiction must not exist, <laughs> that it is ridiculous and it's... It's hypothetical and it's a false construct or it's um, controversial. Why are they so inflamed about that? Well, it goes back to the 1970s when anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa were first named and codified and put into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in the United States. And treatment approaches developed around these conditions and treatment centers developed around these conditions. And the approach, for better or for worse, was around taking people with eating disorders and um, making their eating normal. And because normal eaters don't have usually rules that govern their eating, although I would argue that's less and less true these days. A lot of people who have a very balanced, uh, easeful, healthful relationship with food have certain rules that they abide by, whether it's I don't eat after dinner, or um, I always have a protein shake before I work out, or right, you get or you know, I don't eat fruit with a meal. People who are still doing whatever that diet was in the 1970s that said, don't eat your fruit with meals or whatever, right? I always eat my fruit at times other than me. A lot of uh, uh, balanced eaters have food rules. But but anyway, in the 1970s, they were, they were like, okay, these food rules that these people with eating disorders present with um, are off the hook and we need to sort of um, stamp it out of them. And so treatment became... No food rules. You need to eat all foods in moderation with ease to, to be recovered. And as evidence for food addiction increased, 
the construct became more and more dangerous to those approaches to the treatment of eating disorders. Because if food is really addictive, if some foods are addictive, well, then what would treatment look like? Maybe some abstinence. And now you now you're introducing food rules, which was seen as punitive, counterproductive, um, and eating disordered, right? So um, anyway, so I'm I'm watching this video. This woman's railing against me and bright line eating in very inflamed and unkind ways, and I'm I'm like I'm a little hurt. I'm a little amused. I'm I'm a little understanding. Like okay, this is how it goes. But uh, one of the things that she brings up, and and this is what they, there have been several people. um, One of the things she brings up is, and Susan says, uh, put tape over your mouth when you're in the kitchen. And, um, you know, out of context, bringing it up as this like, like evidence of what a monster I am, that I'm guiding people to put tape on their mouth when they're in the kitchen. So I couldn't remember, is that even in my book? Where Where did I say that? So I just looked it up just now on the computer. Uh, I have a, a PDF of my of my first book, Bright Line Eating, and um, I, I searched for the word tape, and it is there, and it's there. I'm speaking about myself, and I'm speaking about BLTs, bites, licks, and tastes, and I'm speaking about the importance of getting out of the habit of popping food in your mouth all the while you're cooking, right? Like pop, 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 pop. For reasons that might be obvious to you, but let me just state them again, right? If you're popping food in your mouth, first of all, it's really easy to nibble a lot of food without meaning to, and suddenly you're up a pant size and you don't know why, right? So that non-conscious eating is a challenge. Secondly, uh, as you're trying to sort of build integrity with yourself around your food, it can be a really slippery slope, right? Especially if you're cooking with someone and they're making some food that you're not going to eat. Let's say they're, whatever they're doing, they're making pasta, they're baking bread, whatever it is. And now they're popping food and now they offer you some. If you're in this sort of non-conscious nibbling, popping food into your mouth mode before you know it, you've had some of that. And now the part of you that notices that you just broke one of your bright, it's a very slippery slope, right? And so for someone who has never like those folks, right? These people, they, most of them have never had a a serious case of food addiction, nor a really, really, really bad weight problem that they're trying to solve. Right. And so if you've never experienced this, like how shockingly hard it is to get grounding with your relationship with food, how demoralizing it is to spend decades of your life trying to get a grip on this problem. If, if, if solving this problem has never been the first thing that comes to mind when you think, I want to, I want to improve myself. I want to be a better person in life. And the first thing you're writing down is I got to lose this weight, right? If that's never been your day in and day out load to carry, then sure, it might sound absolutely ridiculous to say, put tape on your mouth. But Here I come to the other thing I want to talk about, which is I was reading this other book and it's a cognitive science book. This is not a Barnes and Noble book. This is an MIT press academic book. And it's, it's um, talking about, it's called the distracted mind and it's talking about uh, cognitive science and how distracted we are these days. And, and it's talking about the perception and action cycle and how in amoebas, so backtrack to the primordial ooze, right? In amoebas, 
they just had chemical sensors that pulled. Okay, now. Okay, that was a big topic. There are people who are. Okay, I just need to say one more thing. Stay with me. Stay with me. These inflamed, harsh critics of Bright Line Eating. If I have one request, it's don't search them out and watch their stuff. As a matter of fact, the best thing we can do is just to breathe and love them and not tune in as gawkers to the car accident, right? Like, because what happens when you tune in out of curiosity, their rankings go up. Like, we have a big platform here. There's a freaking lot of people watching this vlog right now or in in this week, right? If we all go hunt down their stuff and watch it, their ratings go through the roof and they go up higher in the search engines. So when someone types in Brightline Eating, now all of a sudden this nonsense that really will, it sounds very well researched, right? How horrible Susan Pierce Thompson is and how horrible Brightline Eating is. And it come if it comes up in the top few searches, now what we're doing is, you know, those people who watch that in the future will probably never find this vlog to explain, you know, how those folks came by their perceptions and God bless them. Right. But so if you, if you want to help, if you're curious, I could just tell you it's incendiary and it's, and it would make you nauseous. Like if you watched it, you'd go, ugh, like really this woman just needs to be kinder first of all in life and, you know, and she's not accurate and she's not, she has no idea about, about how real food addiction is and what it's like to suffer with it. And so if you care about the other people suffering with something that actually really is an actually true, real brain-based condition, then don't go search for their stuff. Just know they're out there. And I promise you at some point in your life, you'll stumble on one of these people shrieking about how horrible bright line eating is and you'll get to see an example of it and you'll go yeah okay susan pierce thompson was right i probably didn't need to see that okay so just saying please don't don't go search for it don't go look at it it's look okay so now the tape on the mouth how could I ever have suggested that anyone put tape on their mouth first of all i didn't i said that i in the early days put tape on my mouth. And I didn't do it every day. I did it during a certain stretch of time where I was really powerless. Like I was in the kitchen wanting to not eat until I got to the table and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And so for a little bit, I gave myself that support. For me at that time in my life with nobody judging me in the house, it felt like an act of self-love. It was like, sweetie, I'm just going to give you a little bit of ease here so you can stop you're cooking, trying to cook dinner, and I'm just going to give you this barrier just so you can make it to the table without eating half a meal, right? I needed to develop response inhibition. That's what I want to talk about next, response inhibition. So the primordial ooze, amoebas. Where we come from deep down, our brains have embedded in them a very simple perception and action cycle where we perceive and then based on that, we act. All organisms have this. 
perception and action. In the, in the primordial ooze with the amoebas, they just have sensors on cell membranes that sense chemical gradients, good or bad, nutrients, toxins. And based on those sensors, they either, they change their direction of locomotion. That's what they do. They go away from toxins and they go toward, you know, gradients that are food, basically. And that's the perception and action cycle. Now in us, because we have all these high level goals, we have response inhibition, which means that, for example, if there's some, if we're hiding and our kids are playing hide and seek with us and we're hiding somewhere and suddenly we hear some scurrying, like maybe it's a rat in it somewhere, like are rats a theme of this vlog? Okay. There's a rat like in the walls or in the closet, right? Even though normally we would squeal or like move really fast, if we're hiding and our kid is looking for us and we're playing hide and seek, we can squelch that response to respond to whatever that sound was, breathe and wait a little longer. That's response inhibition, impulse control. Remember just a second ago, a little bit ago, I talked about how part of the brain of someone suffering with food addiction is impaired impulse control. We are weaker, especially and weaker. I mean, I don't mean that in a moral sense. I mean, our brains don't have as strong a response inhibition and impulse control. And what that means is we are more likely around food to start down what ends up being a slippery slope. And then if we've developed food indulger parts that in psychology manifest the what the hell effect, the what the hell effect is you've had a bite of pizza, now you might as well eat the whole pizza. That's the what the hell effect. I'll start the diet again on Monday, right? That kind of responding is really entrenched in some of us. And yes, it's true that inner work can ease the what the hell effect, but that takes a lot of time and deep, deep, deep work. What also can ease the what the hell effect is more support around not eating the first bite of pizza. And for some of us who are extremely high on the susceptibility scale with really well-developed levels of food-addicted behaviors and a brain that's hijacked to a certain degree, it is entirely feasible that the one bite of pizza will never consistently produce outcomes that we feel comfortable with. You yourself might have run that experiment enough times already. <laughs> I know I have, right? So. As we grow, these naysayers will exist. They just will. And they'll be really upset with us. And how we're going to respond to that is loving them, understanding that they have a perspective that comes from their own experience with food, as everyone does. And our perspective comes from, from our experience with food, which is really different than what they've been through. They don't have a brain that does these wonkadoodle things. And we do. And so we have learned that we need more and different support than they have ever needed around their food. 
And that's okay. That's okay. It's okay that they don't understand. It is okay. And their behavior in terms of railing and castigating and like, you know, accusing and inflamed sort of proclamations about how terrible we are, it doesn't reflect on us. It reflects on them. That's just the way the world works, right? People are speaking in ways that reflect on them, not on whoever or whatever they're speaking to or about. It's all about them. It's not about us. So that's the deal with the scotch tape on the mouth thing. (laughs) It's so funny what a big like sort of focus that is of people who rail against bright line eating. I am not recommending you put scotch tape on your mouth. I am not, but if you've noticed really challenging response inhibition and bites, licks, and tastes are hard, it's like, yeah, that can be problematic, right? And there is a reason why, two reasons, integrity with self, self self-love, like really to have a cleaner boundary with food feels better to someone who has spent their life betraying themselves with food. So self-integrity and avoiding the slippery slope because ultimately... Let me end this vlog by reminding us what we're doing around here. We're helping people put structures into their life, including bright lines, community support, lots of deep inner growth work, a lot of skills around losing weight and maintaining that weight loss so that they can take their focus off their food and their weight so they can give their gifts to the world freely, like really show up for this one wild and beautiful life they've been given and not waste it all thinking about their food and their weight to such a large degree, right? That's what we're doing around here. And there are structures and tools that make sense for those of us who are eights and nines and tens on the susceptibility scale that aren't needed for people who are lower on the susceptibility scale. And they will never understand, potentially. You know, maybe if they try really hard, they'll understand. But that's their business, not ours. So we do what we do around here. We keep going because what we're doing makes sense for the kinds of brains we have. Thanks for sticking with me. (laughs) I hope I tied all those threads together well. (laughs) This vlog was a long and tricky one, but it was fun. Thanks for sticking with me. I love you. That's the weekly vlog. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Brightline Living. Please post a review and subscribe to our channel. Interested in learning more about Brightline Eating? Visit ble.life slash podcast to find out more. ble.life slash podcast. Have a bright day.